0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free. Right now, join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, everybody. I think we can all agree that one of the great perils and problems of our age is that we've become too entrenched in our views, too attached To being right. We're stuck in our information silos and convinced that the other side is monstrous beyond repair. We have a surplus of conviction, and there are marked supply chain issues when it comes to cognitive empathy for people who are on the other side on any number of issues. And this is true not just at a macro level, but also in interpersonal relationships. Think about it how often do you dig in during arguments with friends or family members and refuse to budge? The antidote according to my guest today, the great writer George Saunders, is something he calls holy befuddlement. In Buddhism, a tradition by which Saunders has been deeply influenced, we might call it don't know mind or non-attachment to views. One of the reasons I love having George Saunders on this show, aside from the fact that he's straight up delightful and aside from the fact that he's one of our greatest living writers, is that he can talk not only about his extraordinary art, but also about our core subject here on this show, which is how to do life better. So today you're going to hear George talk about how he endeavors to create holy befuddlement in himself and in his readers. He'll also talk about how shaving down on dogmatism can help us be, in his words, less of a turd. For those of you who don't know, George won a Man Booker Prize for his extraordinary novel, Lincoln in the Bardo. He's got a new book of short stories out called Liberation Day, and that reference to liberation will have no shortage of resonance for anybody interested in Buddhism and meditation. In this conversation, we also talk about how to deal with heightened expectations we might have of ourselves, healthy ways to enjoy praise, what it looks like to cultivate a relationship with our self to the extent that the uh, self exists, the importance of moral ambiguity in his work, the impact of meditating or not meditating on his creative work, and forgiveness and coming up short. We'll get started with George Saunders right after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelphelp.com/happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10%. Or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. George Saunders, welcome back to the show. It's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me again. Really happy to have you back on the show. You have a new book. It's called Liberation Day. Congratulations, by the way, on your new book. Thank you. And... I read some of the supporting materials that were sent to us by your publisher, including a Q&A that you did with the publisher about the title, and it seems like there are two levels to this title in terms of meaning, and so I thought maybe we would start there. W- why Liberation Day?
1: Well, my approach to all things artistic is kind of to trust intuition, trust this process, which is to just come to the work every day respond to it from a gut level, make the changes, put them in and then do that over and over again. And the idea is that if you do that, there's some kind of wisdom that's better than your everyday habitual thinking wisdom that gets into the work. So same with picking titles, like that one was just, you know, I got to the end where here are the stories that are in the book and I just scanned, see which one of these titles is the least bad, (laughs) like that kind of thing. But then there's a lovely time when the stories are all edited. You're trying to read them from the beginning with a really fresh mind, like you haven't seen them before. And then you start to notice certain things. And one of the things I noticed was that almost, I would say every story is about that crossroads we get to where we're like mired in stuckness, in something, in some part of our life, and we're longing to get out of it. And so that's the first step. And the second step is in trying to get out of It's not easy. And also it sometimes leads to further problems. So I just noticed that in every story, somebody was stuck and they could see higher ground, but somehow they couldn't quite get there. So then scanning the titles, Liberation Day, something lights up and you go, that's it. And then after you chose the title, you're going to keep making tweaks to make the rest of the book live up to it, something like that. But it's really from the gut. What stinks the least? (laughs) (laughs) I like that you're setting
0: such a high bar. That makes me feel better about my own writing. (laughs) But in in terms of the levels, though, because on one level, and I'm paraphrasing you back to you, but on one level, you've said that Liberation Day speaks to the notion that everything changes. So you may feel stuck, but the good news and the bad news is that it's going to be different in a, a nanosecond in some way or another. And then there's a deeper level... You have said that these characters that you're writing about here, some of them at least edge around seeing that a true liberation would be not to be stuck in
1: their cells. Right. And that was another thing that hit me sort of late in the game was that came up two or three times in different stories where people got in real jams and they were no easy way out except if they would stop wanting the things they wanted. And so that resonated with what I know of Buddhism. And, but then also in other of the stories, the people were deprived of their selves, deprived of their memories, deprived of their sort of their autonomy. And those were terrible situations. And those people longed for those vestiges of self, like nostalgia and memory. And so that was, in this book, the, the word that kept coming to me was conundrum, because I kept writing myself into positions where I didn't really know what I was rooting for these characters. And I came to think, especially after reading so much of the Russians for that last book as Women Upon in the Rain, that's actually a pretty holy state to be in. And that maybe the function of a story is to lead you there, to lead the reader temporarily into a state of sort of holy befuddlement where the usual easy answers that we apply because we're good people and we like to have everything nailed down are shown to be somewhat inadequate or at least they're shown to be laden with consequence. So that moment where you think you're supposed to be rooting for A succeeds, there are negative consequences. You now think you should be rooting against A and the writer goes, yeah, exactly. And backs out. And I, for me, that's a really hard position to maintain personally. I've had it a couple of times on nonfiction pieces where I've gotten deep into some some nonfiction story where it involves travel and gone in with a really nice idea about it. Very tidy, liberal, progressive idea. And then reality happens. And pretty soon your idea is standing there in in tatters. And it's sweet to say, I honestly don't know. I really don't know. And for me, it's even become sometimes a feeling of strength to go, I'm all right with this feeling of being truly befuddled. So I think these stories kind of came to be almost like I'm trying to guide the reader to be in that state for a few minutes along with me. And then we go back to our all-knowing selves again. (laughs) (laughs) I love the phrase, holy befuddlement.
0: What is holy about it, and how would it come to our rescue in the course of of our daily lives?
1: Yeah, it sounds like something Batman would say, or Robin. (laughs) I think what it means for me is if you're in that state, if you're genuinely in that state, you have removed from you your ability to make facile mistakes. In other words, if you are in that state and a problem presents itself, you have a kind of a new respect for that problem. You've been humbled. I mean really humbled, not like the way that celebrities say they've been humbled when they win something. But they've you've literally been like your judgment has been shorn from you. I think this happens when you know, when somebody dies or when somebody's sick or you get some bad news and or sometimes just when you're for me, when I'm in a state of real high feeling of anything, you sort of see as if in the rearview mirror that your usual way of judging things is a little too easy and it comes out of your desire to cling to certainty, like to know where you stand. So I think it's befuddlement is holy because it turns off certain delusional tricks, I guess, certain ways that we know A and B about ourselves, but in that certainty, we're missing out on something as well. But I think, as I say, it's very hard to get there and it's very hard to sustain it, which I think is part of the reason that art exists. It's just almost sacramentally to put you into that state For maybe two or three minutes after you finish something, you read a story by Alice Munro or you hear a bit of beautiful music and just for a few minutes, you're kind of shorn of the quick answer. You've
0: said this before, so what I'm about to say is not an original observation, but this holy befuddlement seems like a really nice antidote to much of what is ailing
1: our culture right now. I think just to get a taste of it, I mean, certainly on the other hand, there are some big things happening about which we should be active. But, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day and he said he thought the effect of a work of art is reorientation. So it's not like it's teaching you something entirely new, but there's a, say, a better part of yourself, a part of yourself that resides in the world a little more deeply. The work of art reminds you that that guy exists. And that's a pretty big thing because I know I've gone through weeks of my life where that I forgot about that person just running on autopilot. So I think that's the high watermark of what art can do. And I don't think it always does it. That's why some works of art last and others don't, because it's pretty rare when something can really have that effect. I don't know if what I'm
0: about to say is germane, but there's a term I heard once, moral elevation, which apparently happens when you see an act of kindness. I think it's why at the end of in my old job, when I used to be a network news anchor, we would always end the show with something we called the kicker, which sometimes was silly, the water skiing squirrel or whatever. But sometimes it was something sublime where we, it was somebody who did something just awesome in the world for other people. And I think that there's a contact high
1: we can get from that, which seems not wholly removed from what you're describing. Yeah, it's kind of a role modeling, isn't it? And I think that's for me, the germane thing is that it's not like we're being told something fresh. It's almost like moral re elevation. Oh, yeah, I've done that in my life. I respond to that kind of kindness or that kind of daring. And I can do it. I've done it and I can do it again. And I think with stories, especially, they're usually small. The things that happen in them that are beautiful are quite quotidian. They're on the everyday level. I think that's beautiful because it reminds us that you don't have to cure cancer or stop a war or something. I mean, just the small story scale actions are actually quite meaningful. Those kind of incremental things that we can do that you see in Chekhov or, again, Alice in just little moments where somebody in the story experiences moral elevation and does something. Then you go, oh, yeah, It's not irrelevant, it's not inconsequential if in the next two hours I do one thing that isn't thoughtless or that is inclined towards a sort of kindness or something. And I think these days with so much craziness swirling around, I'm taking a lot of comfort in or trying to take comfort in the idea that the small is not trivial. It's almost like you're on a sinking ship and you're looking at the life vest, like I'm gonna concentrate on this buckle (laughs) and make sure it's buckled correctly or reach over to my friend and buckle his correctly. It's not nothing.
0: Joseph Goldstein, the great meditation teacher, who's a frequent flyer on this show, has said there is no hierarchy to compassionate action. We think that compassion or love or whatever you want to call it, we might think or some of us might assume consciously or subconsciously that it needs to be grand. It needs to be operatic. There needs to be string music playing beneath our big, bold action. But it really can
1: be small and that doesn't place it down some hierarchy. Right, right. I think that's important. Yeah, because I, I know I have something in my mind that's kind of like very willing to say, with all that's going on, what does it matter that you're doing this little good thing? And that's, I mean, I think that's really a form of despair to negate a small act because you haven't accomplished the big one. But again, I, that's why the story for me is even the doing of us, the writing of a story is really a lovely reminder of that because at least in my practice of it. You don't get to go into a story and say, okay, let's make this one great. That never works. You have to start really small. Like, let me find a couple sentences that are somewhat compelling. Okay, you got them. Oh, good. Well, actually, the first one's not as good as it could be. All right, then now you're going to make a small tweak. Is it worth it? As an artist, I know 100% it is because the small tweaks are the only thing you have to make up the big thing. So the tens of thousands of micro decisions in a story, some of which almost seem laughably trivial, semicolon or not. I know from experience in my gut that those add up to something bigger or not. That's all you've got is those little decisions. So that's kind of heartening that for me, I have to put aside any notion of being a good writer or a great writer or moving somebody or making a certain political statement. All of that is totally off the board and it's all sublimated to which word is better here? Which phrase can I take out? And that's kind of empowering. So maybe in, in life, the same way, I mean, you've only got the next hour and that's really what you've got control of.
0: You talked about your attitude when approaching a new work, a new story, and how counterproductive it would be to come in thinking now I'm going to do something great, super moving. But how do you avoid that given What's happened in your career thus far? After you win a a Man Booker Prize or after you have all these positive reviews all over the place, after you're profiled in the New York Times Sunday magazine, how do you not have these self-generated expectations
1: on your back as you hit the keyboard? You do have them. And, you know, you say, I wouldn't be a human being if I didn't. But then you spin around real quick and knock it off your back and look at it. Like, okay, George, in what ways are you inclined to be an asshole because of all this attention? (laughs) And then I can list them and I can observe them. Then I think you sort of say, okay, that, what I say is that would not be beneficial to your future work, would it? No, sir, it would not. Okay. Can we get over that as much as you can? Now, I always say it's kind of like if somebody ate like six vats of beans, they would fart. There's no, so attention is like that. You get attention, you're going to get gassy and bloated. To say that you won't would imply that you're some kind of superhuman. So I think the thing is to admit it. And then for me, I have a real, as neurotic as I am, I have a real tough guy inside me with regard to my work. So I'm pretty good at saying, if you wallow in this attention too much, it's going to make you less of a writer. Do we want that we don't. Okay, get over it. At the same time, realizing that that ego takes a lot of crazy forms. So it can take the form of the voice saying, you're doing so well with this attention. You're doing just (laughs) what you told Dan you should do. (laughs) Thereby the ego gets stronger. So it's an ongoing thing. But I think mostly it's just, I really want to do something good before I die. And there's so many ways of getting distracted and attention is one for sure. Or an incorrect relation to attention is one. Can you allow yourself to enjoy some of the attention? Is there a healthy form of craving when it comes to praise? I think there is. And I talk to my students about this. That Since most of us, I mean, if you're in the arts or you're in communication or entertainment, you got into it, or maybe if you're into anything, you got into it for certain reasons that maybe were not holy at the beginning. You wanted attention. You wanted praise. You wanted to be good. You wanted to... For me, I felt like if I was just good at something, then that would excuse all of my other defects as a person. So I say to my students, that's what you got. That's the energy source that you have. So you'd be kind of silly to deny it, especially since we know that denying those things doesn't eradicate them. It just makes them pissed off and they leer at you from across the room. So I say, you know, whatever your strongest motivation for working is, don't judge it. Just use it. Just literally just take that, like converting it into fuel And go ahead. And what happened with me, I think it's still happening, is that early, let's say crass set of reasons for writing, they're still very much there. There may be a smaller proportion of what drives me and what's driving me now is the sense of how beautiful a story could be, the one that I haven't gotten to yet. So yeah, pleasure in it is definitely part of it. And I've kind of learned to, though, not lean on that too much. Like I think when I was younger, a good review would come in and I'd almost like carry it around either literally or in my mind. And that's like eating a bunch of baby Ruths. I mean, the pleasure dies out of it when you've overused it. So I've gotten a little better at taking a quick hit of pleasure and then kind of just literally going onward, just that word onward. So that way it's not a bad thing, I think too. I mean, we were given these egos somehow and they seemed pretty important in how we survive. So I think to. Try to totally deny its existence is sort of silly, but to say, Okay, you can play, but we're not going we're not going to misunderstand you as being something that you're not mr Eagle I had a
0: what I think was a kind of really important breakthrough on this very issue a couple of years ago. I was walking around kicking my own ass for wanting the attention and for wanting the praise, and i Then told myself a story about how everything I did was fruit of the rotten tree because the motivation was not wholesome. I mean, I could see that there were wholesome motivations driving me, but I also saw, I think, most salient in my mind was this desire for positive reviews or nice at replies on Twitter or whatever it is. And I was having a conversation one day with my executive coach, a guy named Jerry Colonna, who's been on this show a bunch of times, great guy. And I was saying to him something along these lines. And he said, well, why can't you just think about it like an exchange? You are giving your audience love in the form of your work that is useful to them. And you are in exchange getting love from them. And that fuels your ability to do more work. It's okay to have these motivations as long as you have them in their proper place. Does any of that resonate with you?
1: Yeah, it's beautiful. When I was a kid, I read Walden and something got triggered in me and I thought, oh my God, yeah, we're every behavior is basically selfish. Therefore, effort is always proof of ego. Therefore, I should never want anything or have make any effort. So this is me at 15. And I thought, okay, that's righteous. I'm just gonna anytime I'm proud of myself, I'm gonna distrust it. Anytime I try to do something, try to impress anybody, which is constantly, I'm gonna distrust it. And I basically went to bed. I got so depressed. There was just every time good energy would come up in me and I'd wanna spend it, this little voice would go, no, no, no. That's ego. And basically what happened was after four days, I'm like, I can't do this. I don't care. I'm not going to live like this. And I just gave myself permission to seek what I wanted. And now, I mean, in retrospect, I think this was something about, you know, they talk about the absolute and the relative. So on the absolute sense, yeah, there's not much meaning. Everything's pretty empty of meaning and, until the human personality comes to it and makes meaning and so on. But on the relative scale the little things do matter. If somebody's feeling bad and you say just the right thing and they feel better, that actually is good. So I I think a lot about that, about the absolute truth of the universe, okay, but then the relative truth, which it's in the details. And I don't think we can live without that, without some lavishing of attention on our own desires and so on. And then it's, as is the case with so many things, it's just a matter of proportion. And that's where it gets sticky, I guess. (laughs) (laughs)
0: I'm not a Buddhist scholar, and what I'm about to say may make that quite clear. But as I understand it in the ancient language of Pali, which is the language in which the Buddha's original teachings was written down, there is the word tanha, which can be roughly translated into thirst or craving, which is the source of our suffering. But there's also a word, I think it's chanda, which is like a healthy desire, the desire to be enlightened, the desire to help other people. And I think those words kind of speak to this discussion you and I are having right now.
1: Yeah. And I think I talked earlier about this idea of conundrums. And as I'm getting ancient, I'm noticing that when I feel the best or the most intelligent is when I've got two notions that seem contradictory that also both seem true and they're just sitting there and I'm all right with it. That's to me it is the highest place to be. So this is one of the first interviews I've done for this book. And I notice myself segueing into a certain mode where the interviewee has answers, which completely runs contradictory to what I learned writing the book, which is don't have answers. Have questions. So it's interesting. And I think yeah, I think those two words you just used, that that's a perfect indicator of how difficult that question is of thirst and hunger. That maybe for me at these days it's I find myself drawn to that moment where I go, huh, yeah, that's a tough one. And trying to learn to sit there a little longer without doing what's natural to me, which is to resolve it. Much more of my
0: conversation with George Saunders right after this. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. You said earlier that while holy befuddlement is a worthy goal, it's tricky in a time when there are urgent problems where we do need to take a stand. Climate, bigotry, the demise of democracy. These seem like issues on which we should have perhaps a pretty clear point
1: of view. So that seems like another conundrum. I think it really is. Yeah. And I mean, the only resolution that i've made is weird but is to keep reading stories and novels because i think let's say that you had to you knew you were going to have to weigh in on a difficult family issue you knew that was going to happen at the forthcoming dinner or something i think one of the things i feel i would want to do is first of all clear my mind of as many th- thoughts as i could projections and precepts and i should this and i shouldn't that just clear all that out and then I would like to have what you described earlier as a moment of moral elevation. So just before I go into the lunch, I observe something on the street that's totally transcendent in its complexity. That opens up my heart. Or, or I listen to some Bach or something, I don't know. But you, something that go, oh yeah, life, something that gets you a little closer to how expansive life really is and how confusing and how beyond our grasp. But it's just something that reminds you of that. Then you go into the difficult conversation in I don't know what you would call it. You just got less BS in you at that point. You know, you've just seen something that morally elevated you. You've just cleared your mind of all the habitual kind of ego protecting thoughts. You're wide open. You're not even pushing the issue of, of saying the thing you need to say. You're waiting for the moment to say it. That's going to come out better. Then if you've been out in the hallway going, okay, now first say this, then say this, and don't let them push you around, you're going to have a wider range of opportunities. So I think that's how I'm thinking about these political issues is it actually does make sense to involve yourself in art, for example, so that if and when a decision is to be made by you and action is to be taken, you're going to be fully there in as fully a human form as you can. Then whatever happens will be for the best, something like that. Whereas the tendency in this time, I think, is to have a list of demands and have a manifesto and a a set of pithy catchphrases so you can level your opponents. That, That we've been doing, that we do. The other thing is a little harder. I find that when I think I know the answer,
0: it's actually a little uncomfortable because part of me knows I don't. I call it like the subtle pain of dogmatism. I think one definition of hysteria is arguing strenuously for something some part of you suspects isn't true. Right. Which we're
1: all, every argument has that in that doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really, and, and, but then again, the opposing thing is I feel within myself this dithering progressive who. Somebody's hitting me in the head with a board and I say, oh, that's such a nice timber. Thank you. Thank you. you know, that, that part of me, I'm a little suspicious of that guy too, because sometimes in my desire to be a kind person, I find that it's an easy off-ramp to just be a passive person or a docile person, which isn't the same thing at all, but it feels like it. And on, on the other, other hand, do no harm sometimes feel like a really good model for me, somebody who talks too much and has too many wisecracks. So again, I would just say these things are swirling around and I would say the state of the world makes them swirl with more force, it seems more imperative to figure out what one should do and harder to do that. Something that's helped me with this conundrum is a technique
0: taught to me by some recent guests on the show, Dan Klerman and Mudita Nisker. They're Buddhist inflected communications coaches with whom I've been working for four years because it was identified by many people close to me that I was often a very unskilled interpersonal communicator. It was That was a correct diagnosis just for the record. And one of their many skills that they teach is called provisional language. So it's pretty simple. It's that you can make an argument you can be somewhat confident that you're that you have a point of view but you might just want to lace your comments with words like perhaps or maybe or could as a way to just make a nod not a cosmetic nod a real nod
1: to what the hell do we really know yeah yeah in this context, I always perhaps strangely think of Mao, Mao Zedong that he said, for a retreating enemy, build a golden bridge. And it's not that someone is your enemy, but for somebody who, is, who you're maybe in conflict with, if you give them some off-ramps, they often won't take them. I went on the Trump campaign for The New Yorker, and it was really interesting to see that if I could put my outrage aside and listen— That was good. And if I could build off ramps for them to say, you know, I could be wrong about this. You probably know this better than I do. And as you say, I wasn't kidding. That, That was true. It just put a little more space into the conversations. And I think this is also when you're writing a story, that's a really important part, too, because when you're reading a story that I wrote, we're in a really interesting dynamic. You know, I'm making this up often from scratch. Okay, so that means you're saying, I know it's not factual, but let's see if it's truthful and I'm gonna to try to tell a story that you buy as being something truthful, that has truth in it. Along the way, one of the things I have to do is build off-ramps for you, or I guess I have to sort of, to reverse the metaphor, I have to kind of block off the off-ramp and say, I know you're resisting at this point because of this. Let me take that, let me take care of that for you. Let me explain. I know you're feeling the story is a little sluggish right now, let me speed it up. I know there's some internal critic who's feeling negatively about this character, Let me acknowledge that or let me mitigate against that. As in the example you use, it's a form of making the communication more intimate, to acknowledge that somebody else isn't necessarily right with you just because you want them to be. It's sort of like good hospitality, I guess. It's interesting because what you just described,
0: what I heard at least, was a real empathy with your reader. And empathy itself is a huge theme, not only in Liberation Day, but from what I can tell, all, or perhaps at least
1: much of your work. I hope all. Yeah. Yeah. Because to me, that it means I always confuse empathy with sympathy, with compassion, with everything else. But I think it has to do with, am I aware that you're on the other end of the, the phone? And am I assuming the best of you? Now, I think mostly the answer is kind of in real life. Yeah. Okay. You're, I'm, I'm at the airport counter. The woman is processing my ticket. Am I aware she's there? Kind of but mostly I'm on the plane already. But when you're creating a work of art a work of, of fiction, you get a chance in super slow motion to exaggerate the extent to which the other person is there and is beloved to you. You know, you, and that's called revision. You, you go through and you say, you know, this draft, I, I'm kind of keeping to myself here. I'm not really listening to the possible objections of the reader. That's not very compassionate. Let me rewrite it so that I'm giving her more credit as a reader. So it's almost like, it's like practice and caring. You're caring for the reader. You're caring for her journey through your story. You're also caring for the characters. You're trying not to phone them either. You're trying to make sure that you give them their due. So I've really cherished it as an anxious person and someone whose brain goes 9 million miles an hour. And I've really cherished it as a chance to slow everything down. Almost like in those, what's those movies, the, uh, Matrix movies where the fights slow way down <laughs> and you think, oh, yeah, if things are that slow. I could be really tough in a story. You slow everything down and you get to come to a day and after day after day. And pretty soon you find a, a more fair arbiter in yourself. You find somebody who actually does care more than maybe at speed I can. For what I can tell, there is empathy on your
0: part in the making of these works. And there's also an attempt to induce empathy on the part of your reader. In particular, I'm wondering if one technique, one technique that shows up a lot in Liberation Day is specifically designed to do this, which is the shifts you among perspectives, even in one story, all of a sudden, some other character will hijack the narrative. And I'm wondering if, in part, you're, aside from just making it a good read, your goal here is to get us to see
1: things differently. Yeah. I mean, those things usually come out of necessity. There'll be, there's a story in the book called Mother's Day, which I had worked on for about four years in one perspective, and I just got stuck. And the symptom for that is that when I get stuck, all the control is with me again, and I start spitting out really dopey, obvious endings. So when I get there, I'm something like, yeah, I think I need somebody else in here to tell me something about that first character that I didn't know. And also what will happen is you'll, by putting a second person, and if you can make that person real, you almost automatically are introducing another element of meaning or thematics to the story. So if you have one person, like in that story, the first woman is deeply hurt by her husband's serial uh, cheating. So the story was about bitterness. Then I put in a second woman who had been one of those lovers, who felt shortchanged because she never really got any time with him? Well, then that became about sadness, kind of. So you've got bitterness and sadness, and then somehow the story became about this third thing—the really about about being trapped in one's desires, basically. So I think the addition of a, of a second narrator is always mechanically just to wake me up and get me out of the doldrums. And then, as you're suggesting, once you do that, it's really lovely to have. Your authorial advocacy shift from one person to another, and it's genuine. At first, I love that first lady. I'm all oh, I'm so into her. I want her to have a happy life, and I'm sad for her. And I know her addiction, and I know the layout of her house. And then, boom, you pop into her, the head of her enemy, and I come to love her too. Oh, I know her house too, and oh yeah, of course it's terrible to never get to spend time with the person you love. So that's really rich when it happens because it's, I mean, it's something like you're trying to, you're trying to occupy a God's eye view, which is to say, which one does God prefer? Oh, both. So that's really, or it's really a lot of fun. And then of course it opens the story up in ways that you didn't expect because sometimes it doesn't turn out well for anybody. That's the way it goes. And yeah, but it's that's a really lovely thing to do, but it has to be required by the story. I think it can't just be sort of, for fun.
0: Right. I get it. You don't want to overuse the technique, but it does seem to me to be really closer to reality, which is that we've got uh, 7 billion humans, humans—never mind all the animals, who are all looking through a straw and all at the same time. And
1: that's what the world is. That's it. That's exactly it. And, you know, that novel Lincoln and the Bardo has something like 160 different perspectives. And that's what I came to feel was, you know, if you drop into a conference room on a given day, so there's 12 people in there, The conventional fictional way of saying it is the sun came in through the window into the conference room where Darren Smith was preparing a presentation. And that's like consensus reality. That's the way that we would describe it. And it's very handy. But in fact, as you're suggesting, what's really going on is twelve monkey minds are grinding away beautifully, in each of them in a separate diction, in a different form and a different structure with different subtext. And really, if you could just As a um, angelic presence skim through those twelve heads at speed, that is the world right there, or it's a pretty good approximation of it. And your feelings about the world would be so right at that point. You could be twelve people in two seconds, and then hover over the table. Your heart would be so full, I think, and your understanding would just be amazing of why that person was going to get out and get up and storm out of the room, why that person can't stop thinking of her lover. You would be. Again, to go back to what we said earlier, you'd be in an incredible position to give advice or to do whatever the next thing was that needed to be done. And you wouldn't be stuck
0: so much in your own story, which can be the source of so much of our suffering.
1: Exactly. Or, or you know, or beautifully, you'd see yours as just number 13. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right.
0: right. But we're talking about the self again. And I did make a note earlier to follow up on something you said about the turning down the volume on the self which, as you said earlier, can be really happiness-inducing. But you also said, and maybe this is another conundrum, that the characters you've written about who've had their selves erased, they don't like that either. So no self doesn't seem
1: like a happy life. Too much self doesn't seem like a happy life. Yeah, so the self that we think is central, if we think it's permanent, if we think it's enduring, we think it's the best, that's probably not right. If you think of yourself that way, you're going to be disappointed. But I think for me, it's you're fond of the self, but you're not wedded to it. It's like a stray dog who's kind of wandered up to like, oh, that's a cute dog. Not my dog, but I like, it's cute. You know, I've had the experience briefly, unfortunately, of just feeling like, yeah, that's kind of fun to be a person. Whereas now at this moment, I feel like it's all I am and I'm desperate to protect it. And I'm very fond of it. And I want it to get good reviews. And I'm obsessing about the details of its childhood, that's maybe too tight. So that's about all I could come up with is it's just like everything else, a matter of degree. You've been given this self just like you've been given a body. It'd be crazy to be not dismissive of that. Oh, it's a stupid body. I hate it. Wish I didn't have it. Maybe you wish that. But on the other hand, to say, yeah, this body, it's always changing. It seems to be getting (laughs) older and less appealing and it can't do as much as it used to. Isn't that sweet? Oh my God, look at that. Remember when that body could jump a fence? So to me, that seems like uh, everything gradational.
0: Many years ago, I was taking an online course in Buddhism and many of the students were doing this thing that many, almost anybody who ever runs into Buddhism does, which is obsessing over what does it mean when the Buddhists talk about the illusion of the self and do we need to get rid of ourselves and all of that. And one of the fellow students said, you know, I think there's an important consonant that is often overlooked here. He was arguing that Buddha wasn't arguing for no self, but instead not, T, not self, that anything that comes up in your mind You can point to that and say, well, do I own that? No, it's just another little neurotic impulse flitting through my brain. I can't claim ownership to it. And so that's not trying to annihilate the self, which is there, even though you can't really find it. But it is more on a moment-to-moment basis. Anything that comes up in the
1: mind can't be claimed as yours. It's about proper relation, to. Yes. Yeah. I think also, you know, I keep thinking of writing because that's the other thing is, especially if you're writing fiction, it's a little not realistic as I often do. You're working from ideas that come to you and you're not, the source is very unclear. It's not, for me, it's not autobiographical strictly. It's just, like, ah, okay, there's a guy walking down the street and here's what he's thinking. Those ideas are, you don't take much ownership of them. You just go, oh, that's interesting that that blew into my thought cloud. Okay, let me put it on paper and use it. But your attachment to it should be anyway very light. The fact that idea and that sentence came to you you have to really just always be looking at it as a temporary gift that may have to get cut or changed. So even though you these thoughts for stories came to you, they seem like they're coming from you, but to work with them correctly, you have to just think of them as literally having been blown in on the wind. Oh, look, there's some dialogue. Okay, let me put it in there. If tomorrow it seems not useful, I'm going to just take it right out and throw it back in the wind. So that's kind of a nice feeling. Whereas I think earlier when I was younger and I would try to write from life and try to make it factual about my life, that was more of a trap for me, just the type of writer I am. But this idea that, yeah, they are just words and ideas that come. If you arrange them in a certain way, they can have an emotional effect. But if they don't, they can just go right back out. No no problem.
0: This attitude must make it much easier for you to, as the phrase that's often used in
1: creative circles is kill your darlings. Yes, 100%. Right? Because you, certain ideas tickle your fancy a little bit. You think you're so clever. And if you cling to those because they make you feel clever, you're not really working in service of the story. You'll pay for that. So. More of
0: my conversation with George Saunders right after this. Uh, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. You have said that one of the stories in your new book, I believe it's Sparrow, came to you in a dream. And so I wonder what that says to you about the nature of ideation and creativity.
1: Usually dreams aren't really (laughs) the best for stories. You you get like, ah, you wake up and they seem great. Oh, yes, a penguin orgy in Mallorca. And then in the light of day, you think that doesn't even make, no, no." But every so often, there'll be something that comes with, it comes in a certain flavor that I've kind of come to recognize. And when it comes, I sit up and I think I should really get up and that's hard. And this was in the middle of winter up in upstate New York and it was freezing in the house and I just, I think I have to write that down. So I got up and went into the kitchen and basically wrote the whole story. I mean, I revised it for months afterwards, but the shape of it was there in real time. So that was really unusual i don't think i've ever had that happen before but it's just after i wrote that russian book where i was analyzing all those stories suddenly i felt incredibly more creative in modes that i'm not usually creative in other words i was finding new corners of the story form to work in and i thought how does that work i read nothing but those seven russians for a year and a half and somehow that went into my head and made me a better writer so same thing with this dream stuff i mean think something i was doing must have god knows what you know did something in my head and that night it decided to appear. So as I do this work longer and longer, I'm just so impressed by and mystified by the way that creativity works and the way the brain works and all that. And to the point where I just don't even have a clue. I just feel like (laughs) I am your handmaiden, (laughs) use me.
0: (laughs) I've often said that I get my best ideas when I'm on long meditation retreats. However, not all of them are good. I've sometimes come home from a meditation retreat, looked at my notebook, and it's Ted Kaczynski's Unabomber (laughs) diary. So you don't know what's going to come when you open
1: up. Yeah, I think David Wallace talks about this. When we're early in our artistic careers, we think that because we felt it as we wrote it down, the reader is going to feel it as she reads it. And that is a fallacy. It's just like anybody who's ever written about a hallucinogen trip. It doesn't convey. So that's really where the craft comes in when we say, okay, maybe I'm not trying to get the reader to feel exactly what I felt. And my thing is I'm just trying to get her to feel something. And I actually don't, to be honest, I don't really care about the flavor of that amazement. I just want her to feel like she'd been through something exceptional. Now, after that, I can say, and it would be nice if... She feels this moral elevation that we talked about, or she feels like paying more attention to the world. But that's something I don't think you can really choose. I think you, the the job is ninety nine percent, like the roller coaster designer, making sure that there's a an instant of speechlessness after the thing is done. Then really your job is finished, and we can come in afterwards and talk about the quality of the second bend or the third drop or something. But that's not really what the game is about. A
0: little while ago, you were talking about your own efforts to have a different relationship to yourself. I'm just curious to hear more about how that's going for you. Before we started rolling, you did mention that you haven't been meditating of late, even though you do have a pretty long history of it. What kind of differences are you seeing in your mind as you hold off from meditating?
1: It's worse. I can feel a lot of old habits coming back, you know, a lot of thought loops that, that I thought had been laughably dismissed are coming back, a little, little more obsession, a little more neurosis, a little more negativity. And the reason for all this inactivity is just that I'm super busy. So I'm trying to say, okay, maybe part of what you wanna do is just notice the way that your mind is falling out of organization with this neglect, which will hopefully congeal into some kind of resolve to do better. You know, it's also funny in that mode, I noticed that, I think I have a kind of former Catholic tendency to sort of an all or nothing thing. Like if I'm not meditating, I must be doing badly and I better get it together and I better do it all the time. Whereas what I'm actually noticing is that there are other things that will incline my mind to be a little lighter and more positive. I mean, exercise, writing, sometimes just I just went back in New York. We sold a house our house there and I had to clean it for I think two straight weeks, a little longer, fifteen hours a day. There was more stuff there than we anticipated. So I and I was out there just working fifteen hours a day and it was so beautiful. I had so much fun, I was so happy. So that tells me something about my mind and that maybe I need more flat out physical against the odds work. So I'm trying to say, well, amidst the general decline of my mindfulness. What else is happening? What are the countercurrents that, that I probably rely on all the time? So, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, that tracks for me. I mean, I'm, I really try to not be a meditation fundamentalist. I think there are many psychological, spiritual, physical activities, practices we can engage in that will be good for us. Meditation just happens to be one of them. And I actually think it's really useful for you to see how obnoxious your inner world becomes when you're not meditating because that creates the inner desire of your own as opposed to an outer desire imposed on you like I should be meditating that I think can lead you to see like yeah when the time is right I would like to start meditating again
1: yeah and also I know for me there's been times when I was meditating like like crazy and it was actually making me really proud of myself. And I was so, I had that box so checked off that whatever else I did, it was, so Since that thing about the basic problems that beset us, like ego or whatever, they're so they're clever, yes, yeah. so clever. Slippery. So,
0: yeah. Does the diminution, perhaps temporarily, of your meditative intensity impact your work?
1: I don't think so. I, in fact, there, there have been times when I was meditating before wor- working and I, Honestly, at that time, my observation was that it was making me so happy that the work (laughs) was getting a little smooth. It was a lovely day, flowers. (laughs) So I think, I certainly don't think of this as a policy, but I think a little, for me, a little agitation, a little desire for praise, all those things are somehow in the mix when I'm working well. But also, I have a feeling that for me, the idea that when you're working on something in writing, there's a state of mind that you inhabit that isn't, normal. It's not your normal mind. And I think it has, I can just by observation say it has less reductive thought in it, less rumination. And actually it's, for me, it's once I'm into it, it's about 90% reaction to what's already on the page. So in that mode, you really aren't thinking about getting groceries or your, or what your body feels like. You're really 90% concentrating on the way that phrase is inflecting your mind. And I find that really nice. Uh, I crave that maybe more than anything else, that feeling of, it it might be like being a rock climber. I mean, you're up on the mountain. What are you thinking? Not much. You're looking for the next hold. So I think that's one of those cross currents that works for me if if I'm not meditating, is to be in that state of mind four or five hours a day really makes me feel happy and positive. And I think part of it is just the absence of rumination, especially negative rumination, but then also to come out of the story and go, that's better now that's better. I see that character a little more. That's a nice turn of phrase. To kind of take that little bit of achievement and just put it in my backpack and go, oh, good. Not Today wasn't wasted. And even if that's an illusion and I cut the whole thing the next day, which happens for the rest of that day, there's a slight, there's more more happiness than there would have been.
0: I want to pick out a few key moments from Liberation Day and talk about them and maybe even read a little bit of them and get you to hold forth. Does that sound... Like something you'd be up for? Sure. You mentioned before there's a story called Mother's Day, but there's also a story called The Mom of Bold Action. And in that, the narrator, late in the story, she's sending an apology beam of white light out of her forehead and directing it toward a guy that her husband had permanently maimed. You make it sound so weird, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) It gets weirder, so stay with me. This woman's husband had permanently maimed this guy because they had come to the incorrect conclusion that he had attacked their son. And so she's trying to send him this apology through a beam of white light, which, by the way, sounds weird, but it actually reminds me of some Tibetan practices. And as she's doing this, she's imagining that via this beam, the recipient, the victim, instantly knows her, like really understands all of her. And here's the quote. And the thing was, knowing her this completely, it all made sense to the guy. And there it was, forgiveness. That's what forgiveness was. He was her. Being her, he got it all, saw just how the whole thing had happened. How could he be mad at her when
1: he was her? I read that in the hopes that maybe you could say a few words about it. Yeah, well, I kind of stumbled on that idea, which I think is something I've done. Just like you think of someone you've offended and you go, If he could see it from my point of view, I know he'd love me because I'm such a nice person and he'd forgive me. So I just made it this beam of light. And it turned out to be a really interesting way to kind of see the limits of her spiritual imagination because she has that nice thought, which I think is probably true. Then a little later on that (laughs) the guy speaks to her in another beam of light and says, well, all right, I'll forgive you, but you got to forgive. And he names this person who really has done something wrong to her. And she kind of like balks. So even in her own imagining of this thing, she outs herself as somebody who has very limited powers of forgiveness. And I thought that was perfect. That's me. You want infinite forgiveness and you'll give some. Just the way in that story, she does a pretty regrettable thing and she sort of participates in causing her husband to do this really regrettable thing. But even at the end, she still isn't quite ready to give up her feeling that she was correct. And I just, I kind of loved her for that. I thought, yeah, of course, that's what you... In in stories, maybe you get to be completely forgiving, but in real life, we're kind of a little more complicated. So that was just one of those things where a technique, a kind of comic te- technique, really. I mean, she imagines sending this beam of light, and at first it can't find the guy and all that kind of thing. But then a sort of comic technique that on the surface is just there to keep the reader interested became a kind of an interesting way of dissecting her actual consciousness and how we tend to go about forgiving ourselves. Because one of the other things she does is she knows she's in the wrong at the end of the story. And she knows that if she just confessed it to her husband, she'd feel somewhat better. And I know this feeling, you know, I'll do something stupid. And if I just tell Paula about it, there's like a, <laughs> a feeling that, okay, you're about 80% forgiven by the world because you admitted it. But in the story, she, to her credit, and I kind of loved her for this, she, she realized that if she told her husband, it would make his life worse. So at the end of the story, she's refraining from doing that which would give her some relief in the name of giving him some relief. Don't you think
0: she's, even though she's later revealed to be somewhat hypocritical or just wrong about this idea that forgiveness is a melding of the victim and the offender, and I think you're arguing this, but that she is on to something, and that it feels like the more we can do the thing that you're encouraging us to do through your writing, which is to inhabit other minds, the more we see that the barrier between us and other is really permeable. And that seems to be forgiveness to understand that in the right conditions, you would be that person. You would do those things that they
1: did. A hundred percent. And I think where she comes up short is that when this other character that she's imagining says, Okay, now will you do the same for the person that you hate? She says, No. Now that's one too many. And then there's another layer. Again, all this was discovered at speed, but the reason she can't do it is because of her hurt. This other guy that she's being asked to forgive really did push her kid down for no reason. So I think that's how it really goes down. All of us believe in forgiveness and compassion and love, but then there's an offense done to us that is just one too many and against our will and against our better intentions. You just balk. You, I can't do it. I... But in E. E. Comey's, he has that line, there is some shit I will not eat. There's some places where as a human being invested with a self and ego, you're like, hey, he insulted my shoes. I'm not going there. So one of the things that happened in E's story that I was kind of happy about was that I think in, I can imagine an earlier version of me as a writer that would have ended the story with that realization about forgiveness. And she would have maybe forgiven the guy. That's a nice, lyrical, uplifting ending but there's a little voice in me now that says, yeah, but aren't there cases where that doesn't happen? Isn't there some artistic merit in illustrating one of those cases where this person that we've come to really like, I really like this character, she falls short, as we all do. And I thought that was something in this book that I kept finding that moment over and over again where a younger me might have just skipped that and in order to have a kind of an uplifting ending with sort of a maybe simpler moral coherence, but I really found myself drawn to the place where you say, well, and this is where the train sometimes goes off the tracks. This is why we find it so hard down here. So I felt that was kind of a maturation of sorts, I hope.
0: It's bringing to mind one of the best book titles ever by Jack Kornfield, another great meditation teacher who wrote a book about how we can have these incredible spiritual experiences. And then we just go back to our regular life and we can be pretty messy even after these transcendent experiences. And the book is called After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's what you're pointing at here.
1: Right. Yeah, because I mean, otherwise, that's another path to despair. If you've had some big spiritual experience and then you act like a turd, the temptation is to say, well, that wasn't real. That moral elevation wasn't real. That's not correct. It's just a a fluctuation. So then I guess the idea would be ideally is to get your fluctuation higher so that you're having a more frequent <laughs> periods of moral elevation, fewer moments of turdness, turditude. But I think it's also, I think if you're, since we're talking about empathy, I, I think for a reader to see a character fall short, especially a character with whom she's identified, is good. Because then you say, yeah, that, that of course, I've done that. There's a part in that story where the main character talks about how hard she's worked to be a good person, and she does this long comical list of things that she's done, kind of like we talked about earlier, the small incremental acts of kindness that she's done. And I like that about her, that she, some of them are ridiculous, but I've done most of them. I mean, she talks about thinking she hid an animal and then going back and trying to find it. I've done that, and So I think that if you can get the reader tracking closely with the character and then the character fails, that's a way of saying, yeah, me too. I fail like that. It's okay if we do, right? It's not the end of the world if one fails.
0: I view that as a public service. (laughs)
1: But don't do it too often. Don't do it too often.
0: (laughs) Let me read one last passage to you. This This is on the final page of the book, and it's in the... A story called My House. This story really landed for me as somebody who's recently gone through real estate hell myself. And it's about a guy who finds a house he really loves, thinks he's going to have that house sold to him by the owner. And then the owner kind of ghosts him and doesn't sell him the house. And the would be buyer sends him a bunch of irate letters. And then the would be buyer finds out that he's dying and sends a final letter which includes these words. Everything has always been falling down around us. Only we were too alive to notice. Nothing lasts, not pride, not affection, not walls, not barns, nothing. I feel this in my body now, the falling apart, a kind of holy truth. I'm trying my best not to be terrified, and yet I am sometimes in the night. Two observations here. Actually, this observation is from DJ Kashmir, the producer who prepped me for this interview. This may be the most Buddhist passage in the book. And the the other question I had, this is less of an observation, more of a question is, how confident are you that you can successfully inhabit the mind of a dying man?
1: I think I can because we are, I am one. It's sort of like a magic show. You don't really have to inhabit the mind. You just have to uh, seem to be someone who's inhabiting the mind. So like when I did the Lincoln book, I'm not gonna, I'm not Lincoln, but I can sort of, it's like that commercial. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. So in a way, in this case, I asserted that he's dying. I hope you believe me. And then I say a certain number of things that I expect I would feel if I was dying. And it's kind of an, an illusion really. If I say, I used to be a clown in the circus. You go, okay. And then you're looking for one or two small proofs. I don't have to give you the whole psychology of the clown at the circus. I just have to say, the thing I hated was I was always losing those rubber noses or whatever, some small, those big shoes chafed. Since you're a willing participant in the story, if I just give you those little crumbs of verisimilitude, sometimes that's enough for us to continue to play the game, really.
0: I don't know. I mean, either you're not giving yourself enough credit or you're just really good at this magic show. Because when you talk about feeling impermanence as a holy truth, something that you're knowing in your bones now, I mean, speaking as somebody who used to volunteer in a hospice, I've seen that. I've seen people have that experience, and I've gotten a little bit of it through
1: Contact High. So it seemed pretty convincing to me. Maybe I'm just a sucker or... No, I've had the same experience. I mean, I've watched people in the final months and so on. And then also, I think even things that have happened to me where I was almost in a plane accident one time years ago. And that that stays with you. You know, there's a really wonderful writer named Edgar Carrot, an Israeli writer. And I think the story was that both of his parents were Holocaust survivors. And so as a kid, he felt like he couldn't really, didn't want to talk about it much or something. And so at one point, and I'm paraphrasing him, but, it, you know, he went to his dad and said, Dad, I know I can never understand what you went through. And the dad said something like, no. He said, son, have you ever been hungry, tired, scared, full of despair? Yes. It's just that but more. So, so there is, especially within the form of the story, you have to sort of get close to it. And you can use things that you have felt. I guess it's believing that all feelings are on a continuum. So if you're a little bit hungry, you have a pretty good insight into what it's like to be starving, at least the beginnings and at least within the tolerance of the form. The empathetic part is partly that, that I can imagine the experience of this dying guy even though as of right now I'm not one. I can imagine the experience of Madame Bovary even though I'm not her. That's a very hopeful throwdown that says whoever you are, you can imagine someone other than yourself, even radically other than yourself.
0: And if you're a Buddhist who believes in reincarnation, which I can't say that I am, I don't believe in it per se, but I'm, I am guess I'm more and more open to it, than you might have been other people. You might have actually had those experiences that you can somehow draw upon.
1: And sometimes it really feels like it. But again, this is, I think, this might seem like the shoddy part of art, but I think part of it is that as an artist, you learn the mechanical means to stimulate that empathy in yourself. So for example, if you're looking for the perfect sentence to prove that you're a clown in the circus, there are some that are better than others. And it has to do with very specific technical things. For example, density of detail, specificity, precision of language. And what's weird is when you, what I found is when you pay attention to those things, that's all exactly equal to increased empathy, partly because it, all of those depend on attention to the fictive corollary you're trying to describe also attention to the language that you're using so somehow and i'm not quite sure why but if you concentrate on those things you actually do become actively more empathetic towards the person you're describing you know you're describing this clown okay what's it like you have to imagine the dressing room it's not so great what did he want to be before a nuclear physicist oh boy what a come down maybe so as you're doing that and you're trying to describe it in specific sentences that convince the picture becomes more clear And the ways in which you should feel compassion for him become more evident to you than they were in the sloppy early version. So it's the thing I love about art. The same thing is true, I think, of spiritual practice. We all have the experience of saying, I wish I could be better. Well, wishing it doesn't make it so. So you need practices. The practice of being a writer is one that will, in a kind of oblique way, will lead you to empathy. Something like empathy through the very specific technical practice that you just have to do to get it done.
0: I want to have some empathy for you and for your schedule. So let me just close with my two habitual questions. One of them is, is there something I should have asked but didn't?
1: No, I thought that was a wonderful conversation. I'm very happy and yeah. Great. I feel the same way.
0: And the other is, can I kind of gently prod you to give one last plug for Liberation Day and anything else that you've put out into the universe that you want people to check out?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I... Well, this book is has a place in my heart because I wrote it during the, all these political things and during the pandemic. And it was a, such a source of comfort to me to just be really a little distraught at times and confused and go up to the writing room and just go, all right, let's put that aside and try to be intense. Just try to be intense and trust that whatever I'm feeling or whatever I need to be thinking about is going to come to me in the best way during these four or five hours. So I didn't really know what the stories meant. I still don't, actually. My only job was to try to make them, and it was such a comfort. So what that did for me is it kind of, at this late stage of life, reassured me of the power of, for me, the power of art and how important it is and how really it can kind of contain everything. If you are intense enough about it, it can contain just about everything there is. So it kind of felt like it set me on my feet a bit and can't wait to start the next thing now that I have refreshed belief (laughs) in it. George Saunders, I
0: look forward to your next thing. And I hope that you're not actually in the late stage of life, that you're actually just in the middle, and that you have a long, productive life. And I'm grateful for your time. So thank you. Dan, thank you so much for what you're doing. It was always a pleasure. Thanks again to George Saunders. Always a pleasure to have him on the show. Thank you as well to everybody who works so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by DJ Kashmir, Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davey, and Lauren Smith. Our senior producer is Marissa Schneiderman. Kimmy Regler is our managing producer, and our executive producer is Jen Poyant. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey.
2: I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest Is the competition? Follow the competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the competition early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus. For more than two centuries,
1: the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House.